You are now going to hear my most political sermon. <laughs> I'm just... Now, there's, it's just the way it shapes up as we're studying the book of Revelation. I want to pray today that God would really speak into our lives because what we are experiencing in our country and what's going on around the world is actually uh, described in a very interestingly uh, powerful way in the book of Revelation. So let's pray that God will open our hearts. So, Father, as we are challenged by evil in our world, by injustice, by even the enemy infiltrating the realms of politics and even the institution of, of, of religious faith. Lord, I pray today that we'll gain a deeper appreciation and understanding of the nature of the work of uh, an evil spirit and the nature of the work of your spirit, and the conflict that is happening, and we're in the midst of it. And so I ask today that you'd open our hearts, our minds, our understanding that we're not fighting against people. The people aren't the problem. Lord, it's the principalities and powers that gain ascendancy over these institutions and then they become very uh, tyrannical in their approach, repressing human freedom, the gift that you gave us. And so I pray today, Father, that we would hear your voice and that we would know what to do in the hour in which we're living, that we would respond in the way that your people of all have responded when they've done what's right in your eyes. I pray, give us that courage, that endurance, that forbearance, that faithfulness, Lord, and the wisdom to know how to act in these days. And we thank you for that in Jesus' name. And God's people said, amen. Amen. You may be seated. One of my favorite subjects when I was in school was history. I, I actually love history, and I'm still studying history today. And uh, I'm having a... Okay, great. I want us to understand that there's a beautiful text in the Old Testament from the book of Ecclesiastes that summarizes what we're going to talk about today. It says, What has been will be again. And what has been done will be done again. And there's nothing new under the sun. Someone has once said that the value of history is to learn from it so that we do not repeat its mistakes. Isn't that true? You know, but a lot of times when we were in school, a lot of kids hated history. Just names and dates and wars and, you know, all that kind of stuff. And it seemed boring. But they didn't understand that there's a reason why we want to learn this stuff. Because we want to understand where we've been in order to understand where we are at. To understand where we're actually going. And we need that information. And the Bible is a lot of history in the Bible. And there's a lot of things that's giving us insight into. Now, we are probably living in a time of great political turmoil. We got music going on? Oh, somebody's phone. Okay. We're living in a time of great political turmoil. Does anybody notice that? You know, you, you can actually see the polarization happening. There's the right side and the left side, what we would call right and left in the political spectrum. And it just seems that the divide is growing and growing and growing. And people are actually getting more angry. Anybody notice? And we're noticing it in Canada. We see it in the United States. We're looking at it around the world. There's, there's just different ways of looking at life. And people become extremely polarized. And eventually there's no communication happening. And then it degenerates into violence. And then you have civil conflict. And you know, this, uh, je- this, this time we're living in the 21st century, we need to look back to the 20th century 
to understand what happened in that century and how it's impacting us even today. In the 20th century, we had the same great divide. As a matter of fact, if you look at European history, you're going to notice it. Uh, The Spanish Civil War. Most of us probably don't even know what happened there. In 1936, you know, there was a, you know, the the democracies in Europe were getting weaker. They were coming through, you know, the First World War. There was economic uh, devastation. The Great Depression was on. Uh, Democracies, when they move away from God tend to rely upon themselves for human understanding of how to address huge problems. And so there was a great divide. And between 1936 and 1939, not only was there conflict in Spain, but a lot of the European nations came in and began to take sides. Russia took sides. Germany took sides. Italy took sides. France and Britain tried to stay out of it, but they were were still people from their countries going over there and fighting. By... by, uh, you know, you, you look through the 20th century and you see, you know, that when one side finally prevails, what do they do? They destroy the other side. And they suppress the voice of the other side. And we see that. You know, the right side in, in uh, Italy and Germany suppressed the rest of the nation. And you had fascism. And it grew very strong. And there was a loss of human freedom. Freedom to express yourself. Freedom to worship. You know, Germany... Uh, sorry, Russia, we had the, they went on the left side after the, the, what, the First World War, and they became communistic in their, in their thinking. France and even Britain experienced deep political divides within their country, and if you look at it today, all these countries are experiencing the same thing. You could take a look at China and Asia and Japan. You had a, a militaristic uh, movement in Japan in the 1920s and 30s, which eventually led to their participation in the Second World War. Cambodia, a little later on, but the same problems. Many people don't know what really happened there. Um, so why is this significant today? Why, why look back at all of these things? Haven't we got beyond that stuff? And the answer is unfortunately no. And we're seeing it rise again. And the Bible actually paints a picture of what happens when governments become powerful at the expense of human freedom, especially the freedom of speech and the practice of religious beliefs. There's a suppression of human freedom. And why would that happen? Because it's God himself who created humanity in his image, and we have the gift of freedom. God gave us this freedom. You know, it's a powerful thing. And yet the enemy of our soul wants to suppress this ability to maybe differ in our viewpoints or suppress the ability for us to worship the true and the living God and to be deviated away and have a false sense of worship. And so I think we're living in a time where these freedoms are actually becoming jeopardized. And if you do any thinking, or we even sent you a little email in our church talking about uh, there's a motion now in our federal government about suppressing some religious freedoms. We have motions now being made in our province beginning to suppress, you know, the freedom of speech. And let's face it, if you and I are not politically correct, we get in trouble in our culture. Isn't that true? How many know that's, there's a, there's a, there's a, there's a societal pressure to say things in a certain manner. And if we go, we maybe don't share the same viewpoint as the majority, then we are considered to be, you know, intolerant and that our view should not be heard. That's what's happening. And I think we need to understand that. And this is beginning to intensify. Now, in the book of Revelation, we have similar things. We have the persecution of the church. And this book is speaking to us in a certain type of 
genre, a certain type of literature. And it's known as apocalyptic. And probably the best book in the Old Testament that reflects the book of Revelation is the book of Daniel because they have similar apocalyptic genre. And you have these imagery. And the imagery that's used is very interesting. It's, it's designed to capture our attention. You've got these monsters coming out of the sea, you know, tan horns and all this kind of stuff. But the reality is those pictures are not literal pictures. And that's what we need to understand. They represent something. And so we're going to look at today how Satan, when he can actually, use, you know, what I call manipulate and begin to control both the political and the religious spectrum of life, then it leads people away from God and there's a suppression of genuine worship. And we're going to look at that. And so we look here in chapter 13, probably the most interesting chapter for a lot of people because we have, you know, sci-fi people love it, movies love it. We talk about the mark of the beast. What is it? And we're going to be looking at that this morning. And so we see here both a land beast and a beast from the sea that are supported by a dragon. Already it's intriguing us, like what is John writing about? What's he talking about here? And we're going to see that from chapter 12, we recognize, and I preached on this a number of weeks ago, that the dragon is actually symbolic of Satan, the, you know, the devil himself who's, you know, has, you know, limited power. We need to understand he has limited power, but he does have power. And as from chapter 12, he's engaged in this great conflict with God. And so what happens in the first century is God becomes a human being and he dies on a cross. His name is Jesus. And Jesus rises from the dead. And when he does that, it changes the whole economy of life. The power of Almighty God is so great that the angels now rise up and cast Satan out of heaven. And all of his rebellious angels, they have no platform to operate in the heavenly realms. And they're cast to earth and they recognize they have a limited time. And so they go after the church. We see here John in one of his letters reveals this insight regarding the evil power of corruption in our world and how deceptive it really is. And he says, dear children, this is the last hour. And as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come. Anti means against. Someone who's negating Christ. Someone who's opposing Christ. This is how we know it's the last hour. They went out from us, but they did not really belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us, but their going showed that none of them belonged to us. In other words, you know, they came out of, you know, in the church world, sometimes you have, you know, wheat and weeds growing together, and some of them leave, and they have the wrong spirit. It's really interesting. I'm not suggesting that everybody that leaves the church had the wrong spirit, but I'm just pointing out John here is explaining something of how deception works inside of people's lives. So how are we going to respond to these evils in our world? Times in which evil is prevailing, where godliness and goodness seem to be overcome. You know, evil that is using the political structure to devalue what is holy and good. And are we not living in that moment that that's exactly what's starting to happen, that political structures are being utilized to suppress what's good? And so what should our response be? When injustice begins to prevail within the systems we're living in, we may question God's ability and power, wonder whether things will eventually turn out right. 
You know, when, when, when the good guys are losing, if I can use that terminology, when the good things are not prevailing, we get discouraged. Isn't that true? How many of that, wouldn't that be true? You see injustice prevailing and what's right is now being overrun by what's wrong. And it, and it causes deep havoc inside of people. It creates turmoil. It creates an unsettledness inside of people. And you wonder sometimes as a church, like, where do we fit in? What are we supposed to do, Pastor? How are we supposed to handle this that's going on around us? And so, you know... In chapter 12, I've already mentioned, you know, the enemy's been cast out. And, and in verse 17, it says, Then the dragon was enraged at the woman and went off to make war against the rest of her offspring, those who obey God's commandments and hold to the testimony of Jesus. So what I'm saying is since the first century, we've had this persecution against the church of Christ by the Antichrist spirit. Okay? Does everybody follow that? That's one premise I'm making today. That's the first thing you've got to get in your head. Okay, there is a spiritual battle going on. It's always gone on from the first century till now. It's always been against the, the true believer, the person who loves Christ, wants to do what's right. There's always been evil opposing that. Does everybody get that? That's what the Bible teaches. and We have to see that. In chapter 13, we find this alliance between two beasts with the dragon. It's, this is so interesting. It's a parody. And, and what it is, you know, what I mean by that is the enemy tries to imitate God. And so God has this holy trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. But in chapter 13, you're going to see this unholy trinity, the dragon, the first beast that comes from the sea, and the second beast that comes from the land. And they're this unholy trinity that's going to oppose God and his people and the kingdom of God, all right? So let's pick up that story in chapter 13 and verse 1. If you have your Bibles, let's turn there, and we're going to look at this chapter. It says, the dragon now is standing on the shore of the sea. And he says, I saw, John says, I saw the beast coming out of the sea. It had ten horns and seven heads. By the way, the dragon is described the same way. So this beast looks like that which is giving him his powers, we're going to see. So he's going to look like Satan. He's going to look like the devil, all right? So it has 10 crowns on its horns. Horns speak of authority or power. And on each head, a blasphemous name. So this is a person who is in rebellion against God, who sees there's no need for God, who is in defiance of God. And then it says, the beast I saw resembled... A leper, but had feet like those of a bear and had the mouth like that of a lion. The dragon gave the beast his power and his throne and his great authority. So we see that this is a false leadership being inspired by satanic force. One of the heads of the beast seems to have had a fatal wound, but the fatal wound had been healed. The whole world was filled with wonder and followed the beast. Earlier and later in the chapter, we're going to see the people that are worshiping and following the lamb. So we have this contrast between those who are following the beast and those who are following the lamb. Everybody notice there's contrasts going on in this book, and that's what we need to understand. The people worship the dragon because he had given authority to the beast, and they also worship the beast and ask, who is like the beast, and who can wage war against it? Now, how many know that when evil starts prevailing, people feel overwhelmed, and they feel you know, like there's no use in resisting. And so they succumb to the evil. 
And that happens a lot. And, this, and I'm, I'm going to move us from just an individual way of looking at life for a moment. Let's lift it up a little higher. Because how many know as nations go, it's going to affect us individually. It's going to affect our families. So if we have a nation that rises up, rebels against God, has this you know, beast-like leadership quality that suppresses human freedom, the people that they're re- reigning and ruling over, they're going to actually suppress them. How many see that? And that we're going to all be affected in a negative way when that happens. And so the book tries to point out that as leaders, you know, there's only two forms of leadership. You're either leading like a beast, which is inspired by Satan. Every evil work brings disorder and disruption. Or you're leading like a lamb. You're, you're literally humble and you're serving the people as the leader. And really, that's what good leadership does. It serves people. But when we have perverted and corrupted leadership, they serve themselves at the expense of the people. And those are the two types of leadership we see modeled here in the book of Revelation. The two beasts represent what happens when both the realm of politics and religion become controlled by the dragon. And that's a scary thing. You know, remember one thing, Satan tries to intimidate or creates fear in our lives. Isn't that one of his approaches, right? He tries to tell us how powerful he is, though he has limited power. He almost acts as if he's the opposite of God. And a lot of Christians have had a false understanding. They put God and Satan, and they see this battle between good and evil, and it's almost equal in power. I want to dispel that because it's a wrong understanding. God is here, and Satan is way down here, and he's a little peon. And he doesn't quite fit in the same power structure. So you've got to get a hold of that. But he's acting. He's always a, he's a liar. The Bible says that. He's a murderer and he's a deceiver. And he actually manifests himself at times as an angel of light. And Paul warns against that in the book of Galatians. So now we can see that he can even use religion to deceive us. And sometimes when we have a wrong understanding, we can be worshiping something other than the Bible's God. That's true. We have a different understanding of who God truly is. So we have to pay attention to all of that. What is so difficult for people in our culture to understand is that there's a spiritual power that is influencing and intimidating and deceiving people. I don't have that little slide, but okay. Say it again. A spiritual power that's influencing, intimidating, and deceiving people. That's what we need to know. And so these two beasts, as Robert Wall writes, he says this, they form and empower another congregation of quote-unquote believers that practice evil and worship the unholy trinity. Wow, that's not nice. The Christians struggle against the anti-Christian impulses of the surrounding world order is not merely an internal and intellectual one. So what is he saying here? Robert Walls, the scholar, he's basically saying this. Our struggle is not just within ourselves that we're struggling against our own internal impulses or you know, wrong desires to do the wrong thing. We're not just struggling against temptation. But he's also saying, you know, it's not, we're also struggling, he says, in a social, socio-political struggle between two communities that have been shaped and empowered either by a benevolent powers, benevolent means evil or evil, or by a benevolent powers, which is for good. So it's either Satan is inspiring and controlling or it is God who's inspiring and controlling. And I want to be inspired by God and controlled by God, personally. I want to surrender to a benevolent person, not 
to a malevolent person who is out to destroy me because the thief only comes to steal, kill, and to destroy. So I want nothing to do with that kingdom. But yet I know that that kingdom is waging war against the kingdom of God. And I'm in this battle, whether I want to be or not. How many go? I don't really want to fight, but the reality is there's a fight coming to me and I don't have a choice. I have to make this decision to stand for God. So here in this 13th chapter we see these two expressions of authority described as beasts that are in conflict with God's kingdom. And the first beast really is a political structure that is corrupted by the dragon. And the first beast is seen coming out of the sea. Now, the sea understood in ancient times was always seen as a place of instability, danger, and chaos. And you can see why people came up with that feeling. Because, you know, we've just had a season of hurricanes, And where did that come from? The sea. And these storms blew in. And look at the destructive nature of these hurricanes, right? Lives were lost. Property was damaged. Isn't that amazing how destructive they are? And so the ancient people saw the sea as representing that chaotic turmoil, that, you know, the the pain, the suffering, the sorrow that comes from the sea. Okay, now, the description of the first beast coming out of the sea is as we've already pointed out, is similar to the dragon. Robert Wall says, like the dragon, it has all the symbols of kingly authority. Ten crowns on his horns, brute power, and seven heads, and on each head a blasphemous name. Then it says, both form and place of origin indicate that it is an agent of the evil one. The mythic sea like the abyss, abyss is the place of, you know, hell, darkness, is associated with evil monsters like Leviathan. And in the book of Job, you have Behemoth, the sea monster and the land monster. Those are all images from earlier ancient mythological understandings of creation. But it says they're, they're like these evil coming up. And then it says, and in Daniel's vision, four terrifying beasts come out of the sea to boast of their greatness. Now, In Daniel's vision, he gives us the interpretation. Aren't you glad for that? So in Daniel chapter 7, he says it this way. There were four great beasts, each different from the other, and they came up out of the sea. How many are already picking up? The language is similar. Everybody catch this? The language in Daniel is very similar to the language in Revelation because it's this apocalyptic genre. Then it says, the first was like a lion, And it had the wings of an eagle. And then there was before me a second beast which looked like a bear. And then the third beast before me was one that looked like a leper. How many are already picking up that's the same creatures that John is writing about in the book of Revelation? Now, when you study this, what Daniel is telling you, he's describing various kingdoms in ancient history that arose that subjugated the world. You had the Babylonians... Then you had the Persians. Then you had, you know, Alexander the Great. What are these guys in common? They subjugated. They conquered peoples underneath them. And they repressed them. They, They didn't give them freedom. They ruled over them, okay? And then it says here in verse 7, After that in my vision at night I looked, and there before me was a fourth beast, terrifying and frightening and very powerful. It had large iron teeth. It crushed and devoured its victims and trampled underfoot whatever was left. And it was different from all the former beasts and it had ten horns. How many are getting a sense? Boy, we're almost quoting from the book of Daniel here, you know? And we have all these same beasts going on. What in the world is Daniel talking about? Well, most believe that he's talking about the Roman Empire here. 
And many people believe that what John is writing about is the same Roman Empire that's now suppressing and, you know, literally persecuting the saints of God. Because it's not so much these empires and their names and their locations. It's more to understanding that the enemy takes control of governance over peoples. And then the government is actually thinking they're doing a good thing, right? If you talk to most government people, they think they're doing the right thing. They wouldn't be doing what they're doing if they didn't think it was good. But they don't have to understand which spirit is drawing them and motivating and inspiring them to do things. And so that's what we need to understand here. So here in Revelation 13, 2, it says, The beast I saw resembled a leopard, but had feet like a bear and a mouth like a lion. And the dragon gave the beast his power, his throne, and his great authority. So... It takes on all of the characteristics of these earlier beasts that subjugate the world with reins of conquest. Now, basically, this is a militaristic power that subdues people. The use of law and order in the wrong hands is a travesty of true justice. I mean, no, that's true. You know, it is what we would call a totalitarian government. So, you know, I did a little studying on totalitarianism. And by the way, we've had a lot of totalitarian governments, and especially in the 20th century. And my deepest concern right now is we're in the 21st century, and we may be moving towards this once again, unfortunately. You know, the Encyclopedia Britannica, I don't think they have any, this is, you know, just educators, and they're, they're giving us some good descriptions. They said, under totalitarian rule, traditional social um, institutions and organizations are discouraged and suppressed. Thus, the social fabric is weakened and people become more amiable to absorption into a single unified movement. Participation in approved public organizations is at first encouraged and then required. All religious and social ties are supplanted by artificial ties to the state and its ideology. So what's going on? It's conforming people to a certain way of thinking. Okay? There's a pressure to form people into a certain way. And then it goes on to say, as pluralism and individualism diminishes, most of the people embrace the totalitarian state ideology. In other words, they don't think for themselves anymore. They're being told what to think. And then it goes on and says this, the infinite diversity among individuals blurs, replaced by a mass conformity or at least an acquiescence to the beliefs and behaviors sanctioned by the state. How to, what really happens then? These are just fancy ways of saying that the state begins to take control of how people are going to live and think. And if you don't conform to their way of thinking, you are the enemy and you are gotten rid of. You are either imprisoned or you're You're killed. And large-scale organized violence becomes permissible, sometimes necessary under a totalitarian rule. It's justified by the overriding commitment to the state's ideology and pursuit of the state's goals. And in Nazi Germany and Stalin's Soviet Union, whole classes of people were destroyed. They were blamed for their problems, like the Jews and the wealthy uh, uh, peasant farmers. And they're singled out. And, uh, And so then, you know... The difference between a police operations in a totalitarian state and, and then just a regular police state is simply this. In a police state, the police operate according to consistent procedures. In a totalitarian state, 
the police operate without the restraints of laws and regulations. Their actions are unpredictable and directed by the whims of the rulers. Okay? So I'm just giving you an idea. You know, think about this. I'll pick on Germany for a minute. Here's a country that had so many Christians in it. Here was a country that had experienced the Reformation. True. And yet here was a country, you know, that eventually become militaristic, was defeated in World War I, felt shamed and humiliated, and eventually, you know, they were polarized. That, you know, they went through a depression. The democracies that were leading Germany for a period of time could not withstand the pressure from both, you know, the fascist and the communist, the far right, the far left. Eventually, there were clashes between the two. Eventually, one of them prevailed, which was the far right, which we know as Nazism. And even the church, this is really sad to say, but two-thirds of the church embraced Hitler as an answer to their problems as a nation. Isn't that interesting? And promoted him as being a savior to their nation. And eventually, and this is the problem with, with totalitarianism. When evil rules, evil cannot sustain itself. And because Hitler promised a thousand-year reign, guess what happened? It never lasted a thousand years. It couldn't last two decades. Because evil has got self-destructive seeds in it, and eventually it diminishes itself. And when you study history, this is what you'll find out. When you go this far, you have countries like Japan, who at the end of the war were totally annihilated. You have Germany the same way. We could just go down and talk about what happened at the end of World War I with Russia. I could just go down in China and talk about the purge that happened over Mao Tung and all the destruction and all of the carnage of people who actually had a different idea than he had just wipe them out now why you bring all of this up because that's the that's what the beast does it's it just it's destructive you know and and his activity i'm going to move on here uh his activity is simply to have you know the world follow him in worshiping the dragon and, and people don't realize there's actually an agenda, but the people engaged in it don't even see the agenda. They don't understand what's really going on. And that's why uh, John says this in Revelation 17, you know, because he basically says, you know, this was happening in John's day. By the way, this is always the pressure in every generation. This isn't new to the 21st century. It's not new to the 20th century. It was happening in the 1st century. It's happened in every century since. And the enemy has always been working this way. In Revelation 17, 9 and 10, it says, This calls for a mind with wisdom. The seven hills heads are the seven hills on which the woman sits. Now John is unpacking that this beast that you're looking at is actually, you know, a location. He's actually identifying the, the leadership of this thing. And there are also seven kings. Five have fallen, one is, and the other is yet to come. But when he does come, he will remain for a little while. And actually, most scholars know that actually what he's talking about is Rome. He's talking about the Roman Empire and what it was doing and how it was persecuting the church. And John was writing about that. So what is, what is it? We, how do we handle this? What is the challenge for us as saints? be it in the first century or in the 21st century, be it where we're at today. You know, we have a lot of freedom in our country, but I do sense that some of our freedoms are being challenged right now. Okay, so what's, what's the challenge for us right now? And I think we've got to look at verses 9 and 10. It tells us how we should he- respond. 
Now, it was far more severe in the first century. So here's what John says. Whoever has ears, let him hear. In other words, pay attention. Don't be sleeping, guys. If anyone is to go into captivity, into captivity they will go. Let me ask a question. When you have a totalitarian rule rise to power, there will be people who oppose it. Isn't that true? What will happen to them? They will be imprisoned. Okay, and I'm going to just say this, that a lot of wonderful Christians over 20 centuries have actually gone to jail because they've stood against something that was evil. Okay? So I say to myself, if you don't realize that this could be a possibility, you're not prepared for it. You know, most people, in, in, when Nazism took over, do you think Germany was really ready for all of that? I don't think so. And a lot of people just conformed to what was going on. They just kind of slid into accepting what was happening. They had no idea where it was going. But there were people who actually thought about what was going on and they resisted. And some of them resisted to the point where they were put in concentration camps. They resisted and went to prison. Other people resisted and were, you know, killed because of it. It says here, you know, if anyone is to go into captivity, into captivity they will go. If anyone is to be killed with the sword, with the sword they will be killed. In other words, we have to be prepared to give our lives for this. But we're not thinking along this line. We don't think it's going to get that bad. Folks, it's gotten that bad in the past. That's my point. And you know, because we have developed a very futuristic interpretation of the book of Revelation, we have this understanding that we'll be taken off the planet before anything bad happens. Well, folks, that's a nice hope. And I wish that that was true. But it may not pan out that way. And it certainly didn't pan out that way in the 1930s for Germans. It didn't pan out that way in the 1920s and 30s for you know, people living in Italy. I'm just pointing it out. This, these people went through these things and they suffered these things. And then it says this powerful text. This calls for patient endurance and faithfulness on the part of God's people. In other words, what we need to do is be patient and we need to endure. We can't just give up. We can't just give in to this thing. We need to stand, but we need to exhibit tremendous wisdom and patience. So John is telling us about the beasts and the challenges that are before us as a church. Daryl Johnson says it this way in Revelation 13, 1-10. John wants us to hear the truth about political powers, about nations. If they move out from under God, they move in the direction of blasphemy and beastliness. And folks, I, I hate to tell us this, you know, but if we're really being honest, our nation had Judeo-Christian foundations inside of our parliament, stones in the buildings themselves are texts of scripture that scream out that this is one nation under God. This is a nation. We were designed to be a dominion under God. And we need to understand that we've removed that concept now and we're moving away from God. And so leadership has a great tendency to become a beast rather than to operate like a lamb. And there's going to be loss of freedom in the process. So what is the Spirit of God instructing us how we should handle the evil as believers? Well, it doesn't change. You and I need to, uh, we need to be enduring. We need to be faithful. We need to have our hope in God. Hope is hope in the final outcome. Guess what? The evil is not, is not going to win. I'm going to give you the good news. Evil never wins. Evil never wins. You go, why? Because evil cannot win. Because evil destroys itself. It just can't help itself. But the problem is when you're confronted with evil, how do you respond to it? The temptation is to give evil in return. Isn't that true? When someone hurts us, you know, we want to, you know, 
get back. And yet the Bible teaches us we need to what? Do good. We need to pray. We need to forgive. We need to bless. You know, we need to act like a lamb. We need to be willing to lay down our lives. Well, I don't think most of us have thought about that or prepared our minds for that, but that's a potential that, you know, instead of, you know, fighting back, we may have to lay down our lives. Isn't that what Jesus did? And isn't that how he triumphed over the powers of darkness? Of course. But let me move to the second point. It's the power of a spiritual authority. He uses deception from the dragon. And this is what happens when we develop deceptive religious systems that eventually promote the political system that eventually enslaves people. And that's a problem. See the description of the second beast from the land now. Then I saw another beast coming out of the earth. He had two horns like a lamb. Notice there's a similarity. Who's the lamb in the book of Revelation? Jesus. So this is going to look like Jesus. But when he speaks, it sounds like the dragon. It says, but he spoke like a dragon. So he looked like a lamb, but he sounded like a dragon. You know, you can't, you know, you can always tell what's coming out by what they're saying. He says, he exercised all the authority of the first beast on his behalf. He made the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose fatal wound had been healed. And he performed great and miraculous signs, even causing fire to come down from heaven to earth in full view of men. And this is why I say to people, don't be taken in by signs and wonders and miracles. Because the devil can duplicate those things. And so we have to be people who love the truth. When you read 2 Thessalonians, he says that God will allow people to believe a lie. He'll allow people to be deceived. He'll allow it. Because he wants to know in our hearts, are we going to love the truth? And who is the truth but Jesus Christ? And if we love the truth and we love our Lord and we're saying, I want to follow you, Jesus. If we get into the word of God and we renew our minds, we're not going to be deceived by this stuff. We're going to see it for what it is. And we're going to see it as a deception. And we're not going to embrace it. But you know what's interesting? This activity of the second beast. You know, it says here in verse 14, because of the signs he was given power to do on behalf of the first beast, it says um, he deceived the inhabitants of the earth. So Satan is a deceiver. He ordered them to set up an image in honor of the first beast who was wounded by the sword and yet lived. He, he was given power to give breath to the image of the first beast so that he could speak and cause all who refused to worship the image to be killed. That's not freedom, is it? He also forced everyone, small and great, rich and poor, f- free and slave, to receive a mark on his right hand or on his forehead. This is the mark of the beast now, right? So that no one could buy or sell unless he had the mark, which is the name of the beast or the name of his number. This calls for wisdom. If anyone has insight, let him calculate the number of the beast. For it is man's number, and his number is 666. So what is the second beast doing? He's deceiving the nations. And I like the way Dale Johnson says, the beast from the earth, the dragon manipulating religious power, represents the false prophets. And you're going to see that later on in this book. This was precisely what was happening in the last decade of the first century. What was happening was throughout the province of Asia, which is now modern-day Turkey, where all these early churches were located, where the seven churches to whom the revelation was first addressed were located, local religious authorities were the strongest advocates of emperor worship. They were vying for it. They were building temples to the emperors. The historical fact is that it was the religious powers that proposed the idea of emperor worship. It was the local religious leaders who gave the orders to make a statue to the emperors. It was the religious power that gave life to the worship of the state. Okay? So that's pretty powerful stuff. Now, who was resisting this? The Christians. Because, you see, you'd have to come 
and put a little pinch of incense and to say that Caesar was Lord. In other words, he is God. And the Christian community goes, I'm not doing that. There's only one God, and the one God is the Lord Jesus Christ. So I refuse to do that. But when you refuse to do that, it affected you as a business person. It affected you. It threatened your business. It threatened your existence, and it even threatened your life. So this is what was happening in the first century. Now, you say, so what is the mark of the beast, Pastor? That's good. I'm glad we asked that question because it's everybody's mind, you know. And, you know, the number itself, he says, have wisdom. It's 666. So what is it about? Well, in the first century, they practiced something called uh, gametria, which is really taking letters and giving them numerical equivalents, Okay. So it's A is equal to 1, B is equal to 2. But when you get down to some of the later letters, it's equal to 10, then equal to 15, equal to 100. And so in the Greek, what would happen is if you put the name of Caesar Nero, which was mostly what people believed or, you know, was who they were talking about here, it actually didn't work out. It was 616. But if you put it in the Hebrew language, which is a trans, they have to translate it into Hebrew, it worked. Now, that's a lot of little gymnastics to make it work. Now, here's the other thing. You know, how many know the number seven is actually representing God? Because when you read in the first chapter, it talks about the seven spirits, right? Talking about the Holy Spirit. So seven is the number of God. So the number of six is when man was created, which is the number of man. So six is one less than God. So we are under God, but we are never equal to God and we're never above God. But when we reject God, we put ourselves as if we are God. That's a big problem. Now, what is this thing about? Is this an actual, literal tattoo somebody got put on their foreheads? I mean, there have been markings and trappings where people have been able to be identified because maybe they had a yellow star printed on their clothing and people identified them as that's a mark, right? And so that's, that's not only been done in the 20s and 30s, that goes all the way back into history. And then we look at what's happening today, and I hear from Christians all the time, well, pastor, you know that they can now put chips in your hands so that we could just go out by and scan, you know, and that, that'll be the mark of the beast. We can't buy or sell because you have to have a chip in your hand or in your forehead. But let's go back a little bit, and I'm going to point out that could be something that may happen in the future. But let me point out something that you may not have considered. Remember back in Revelation chapter 7, when the Bible says this, that God himself puts a mark on his children. He puts a seal in our life. Look, I saw another angel coming up from the east, having the seal of the living God. And he called out in a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm the land and the sea. Do not harm the land or the sea or the trees until we have put a seal on the foreheads of the servants of our God. And so the question is, what did they put on these guys? And I believe the answer is found in a letter like the book of Ephesians, where Paul is telling us what the seal is or what, the God, what's, what is God's mark on our lives. I love it. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked with a seal. And you know what that seal is? The Holy Spirit. So when you and I give our life to Christ, God's spirit comes inside of us. This is so beautiful. So that you and I are now identifiable. How do you, how do you know that you're identifiable? Because when we're living a life yielded to the Holy Spirit, you can see the characteristics. 
And the characteristics is love and joy and peace and self-control. And all of a sudden, you know, the things that we once enjoyed doing that were sinful, now we go, I've lost my taste for those things. And the things now that I want to live to please God. I have a desire to do what's right in God's sight. I've lost the desire to be a rebel against God and do my own thing. Isn't that amazing? That's the work of the Spirit in our lives. So then, Pastor, what is the mark of the beast? I believe the mark of the beast that's been going on for 20 centuries is simply this. It's where it's in their foreheads and it's in their hands. So what happens when you and I do not know God and do not know God's ways? We have a different way of looking at life in our minds. And out of that, we end up doing different activities. We start living according to our sinful nature. You see, when we embrace the values of this culture, we're actually embracing the mark of the beast. It's not a permanent mark, because, I mean, if you and I repent and give our life to Christ, God can seal us with his spirit and deliver us from that problem, okay? It's not a forever problem. We can actually receive Christ and be set free from that experience. So, let me just close here. I've said a lot. We've gone through a lot of material here today. But why am I saying all of this? Well, I think it's amazing how many movies and science fiction thrillers originate out of the book of Revelation. I mean, that's true. And the reality is that this book was meant to be understood as a revelation of the person of Jesus Christ. And it reveals that Satan and his, and it also reveals that Satan and his unholy beasts are all about. God is exposing their works of darkness. And he's also showing us what has happened, what is happening, and what will happen. Nothing is new under the sun. This is going to continue until the day Jesus Christ comes back. So what is God calling us to do? Here's what I need to walk away with. I need to patiently endure. And let me give you a time way back when, when this became very real to God's people. I'm going to take you back to the Babylonian captivity. I'm going to take you back to the first book that has all this apocalyptic literature in it, the book of Daniel. And remember the story, Nebuchadnezzar comes along and he's suppressing all these people and he has a dream and he has this dream about this image and then eventually he builds the image and I think he built an image of himself, but maybe I'm wrong. But anyways, it's 90 feet tall and he's getting everybody to worship. And then all of a sudden, there's these three Hebrew kids. Their names are Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They show up and they decide we're not going to bow down to the statue because we're going to worship God. So they're not going to take the mark of the beast in a sense. They're not going to go down that track. So what just happens, it says here, uh, they, says, they say to the king, notice how they talked to him, very respectfully. They said, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. They said... Uh, if you throw us into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it. And, we, and he will deliver us from your majesty's hands. Isn't that kind of polite? No, God's going to deliver us from you, either by death or by whatever. But we're going to be delivered. You know? He says, but even if he does not, we want you to know your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of the God you have set up. So what did they display? An unusual amount of courage to do what was right in a time when there was great pressure to succumb to the evil leadership that was against Almighty God. True? That's true. We need to learn from this. We need to understand the time we're in. We need to understand how we need to respond to these things. We need to take responsibility. We need to wake up and realize this is going on, folks, whether we believe it or not. And if we don't utilize the freedoms that we have today, there'll be a day when we don't have those freedoms. It's just that simple. We need to understand this. And 
don't ever think it can't happen. It's happened throughout history, and we're feeling the pressure today. Let's stand. You say, what kind of a sermon is this? An explanatory one. I'm trying to explain something. I'm trying to show you from the scriptures. I'm trying to explain something that's happened, is happening, and it will happen. What do I need to do? I need to be strong in the Lord. I need to know the word of God. I need to be a lover of the truth. I need to be renewing my mind in the scriptures. I need to be understanding the hour in which I'm living. And I love that scripture that said the men, the tribe, men from the tribe of Ishakar knew the times and they knew what to do. They were considered wise because they knew the time they were living in and they knew what to do. I want you to be wise. I believe Christians should be the people of wisdom. We may not have all the knowledge, but we're the people of wisdom because we understand that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And we understand the hour in which we're living. And we understand what we need to do. We need to endure. We need to endure in this hour. We need to be prayerful. We need to be awake and knowledgeable about what's happening. We need to take on responsibilities and do what's right in the eyes of God. And if God calls us to a place of leadership, we will be tempted to be a beast to oppress and use our position to lord it over people. That's the way of this world. And Jesus said, you shall not be like that. If you're going to be a leader in my kingdom, you have to be like me. I'm a lamb. You have to come among the people and serve them. You're not here for your good. You're here for their good. And Jesus was willing to lay down his life for us. And God is asking the same of us, that we would be willing to stand and lay down our selfishness and our rights for the sake of others, that you and I would be willing to serve other people, even though it's costing us, we can be falsely accused, we can be persecuted, but God wants us to be courageous. Are we getting a sense today that this book is not just a fairy tale book written far long time ago and it's got all these weird designs in it, but it was actually designed for us to hear it in this moment to understand we're living in this stuff and we need to get it. We need to understand it. We need to ask for God's strength and God's grace in our lives so that we can be the kind of people that allow the mark of the Lamb of God that's living within us, the Spirit of the living God to flow through us because there's so many people that have already been marked by the mark of the beast. And their thinking is corrupted. And they're believing the lies and the deception of the enemy. And you and I need to live in the truth. And we need to stand for the truth. Amen? Amen. Let us pray. Let us pray. God, we cry out to you today. We need amazing grace. We need amazing understanding, amazing wisdom, oh God. Yes, we are being challenged in this day, but Lord, it's always been this way. There have been worse times. There have been better times. But Lord, help us not to fail you in this hour, this moment of time, Lord, where we are your children living in this hour. Help us to be like shining stars, radiating a message of hope, a message of courage, a message of understanding and wisdom. Lord, help us to be, you know, wise as serpent, harmless as doves. Help us to to live the life of the Lamb. 
and not to become beastly in our approach to people, oh God. Help us not to succumb to doing things in an evil way, Father, even though we're being pressured by the evil one, that we would respond in a Christ-like manner. Lord, help us, Lord, to take responsibilities where you're calling us as parents, as civic leaders, oh God, as maybe even aspiring as political leaders, oh God, but the temptation is always so great, Lord, that we could succumb to the ways of this world. Lord, protect our hearts and keep us, I pray, true to you in the midst of this time of temptation and this great spiritual conflict. Lord, help us to recognize evil will eventually come to an end because it cannot survive. It has no life in itself. And that only holiness and godliness has true life. And we thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you as you leave this morning.